Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery again, part 15 today of our Tea History Podcast. Thanks again to everyone who's made it this far. At the very outset of this series, all those episodes ago, we looked at the second of the mythical three sovereigns of the most ancient times. Won't say his name, you all know who Shannong is by now. Starting from around his time in pre-Bronze Age China, all the way into the mid-19th century, the Middle Kingdom had enjoyed a most profitable worldwide monopoly on the growing, processing, and export of tea. Thanks in part to their long and continuous civilization, the Chinese, over more than 40 centuries, from 2737 BCE all the way up to and during the Qing Dynasty, 1644 to 1911, had gradually figured out almost every conceivable way to eke out as much goodness and pleasure as could be had from this Camellia sinensis plant. China acted as the fountainhead, or Yuantou, in both the growing of tea and in the development and refinement of tea culture. Over the millennia, countless new cultivars had been developed in all the tea-growing regions of China that use selective breeding or hybridization. When you read today that there exist thousands of different kinds of teas in the market, it's from this method that so many varieties were created. You see, that was the thing about tea, or any plant for that matter. As long as the growing conditions were suitable, you could grow tea. As long as you had the smarts and technology to process the tea leaves, the only other thing you needed were the right growing conditions. Today, tea is now grown in more than 50 countries. And because of all the advances in horticulture and plant genetics, tea plants thrive in places where it was once unthinkable to grow. I heard recently on Chernell Howell's great podcast called Tea Talk that tea's even grown on the island of Jersey in the English Channel. And even in Scotland and Perthshire, Fife and Angus, they're growing tea. But back in the 19th century... They lacked the technologies and wherewithal to stray too far from the natural tea gardens that ran from the Brahmaputra Valley to eastern China. As early as 1788, Sir Joseph Banks, an English naturalist, had been the first to suggest the notion of growing tea in India. That's what today's episode is all about. Taking a plant from China and transporting it to India, where the growing conditions were also Equally ideal. But it wasn't enough just to plant the seeds and start growing tea. After 14 episodes, we've learned it was slightly more complicated than that. During the McCartney mission to China in 1795, British had been able to secure some seeds and brought them back to Calcutta, but nothing came of it. Planting and harvesting the tea leaves was one thing. That was only the front end of the whole process. So many steps followed this part. And what those steps were, 
even in the 19th century, remained a mystery to the British, eager to get into the tea cultivation business themselves. When the East India Company bosses and other trading companies first had the idea to create an Indian tea industry, they knew the final product that they sold would have to taste just as good as the China stuff. That was the fundamental problem. As I said at the outset of this series, turning raw tea leaves into a fine-tasting beverage wasn't an intuitive process at all. It had taken the Chinese thousands of years of trial and error and ingenuity to get it right. Early on, British tea traders familiar with Bengal in northeast India wondered if this can be done. Their first big break came in 1823. Soldier and adventurer Robert Bruce, a Scotsman, provided the breakthrough that started everything. Now, this was not Robert the Bruce, King of Scots, from 1306 to 1329. He was one of those many Brits who came to India in colonial days to make something of his life. Whilst up in northern Assam, he came into contact with a nobleman of those parts named Maniram Dewan, who in turn introduced him to the Singpo tribal headman up there named Besagam. That's how it all began. Robert Bruce, trained in botany, observed the local people consuming the leaves that he was pretty sure were Camellia sinensis. This was the great moment. This was where Robert Bruce had the idea that if what he was seeing was in fact true, there was a pretty good chance the British could grow tea in this land. The Singpo tribal leader, Bisagam, assured Robert Bruce that next time he returned, he would be happy to offer him both seeds and tea plants for his study. What Robert Bruce chanced upon was the Assam leaf varietal of the Camellia sinensis plant. It was he who discovered what the local Indians probably had known about since time immemorial. Robert Bruce died the following year in 1824. Fortunately, the secret of the location of these tea gardens and the indigenous tea plants in Assam didn't die with them. Alas, Robert Bruce's brother Charles was there to pick up the ball and carry it forward. Charles Alexander Bruce, not a well-known name, perhaps, but he's called the father of the Indian tea industry. After his brother turned him on to these tea plants and the location in Assam where he found them growing indigenously, he went to this location given to him by his brother Robert and met with the same chieftain who true to his word, provided Charles Bruce with the sample seeds and plants. And that's really all it took. In that moment, the monopoly China enjoyed all those thousands of years was suddenly put in jeopardy. He brought these specimens back to where he was living near the source of the Brahmaputra River in northeast India. And there he planted the seeds and plants and waited for nature to do its thing. And the upshot was the formation of an aptly named Tea Committee in 1834. They were based in Calcutta and tasked with managing this whole enterprise of possibly growing tea in India. Charles Bruce, in a report he sent to this esteemed committee in 1839, stated, quote, The difficulty of carrying on dealings with China, which seems to be always increasing, has of late years led to an anxious discussion of the possibility of obtaining tea from a different source, end quote. 
the British have been trying in vain to steal tea plants and seeds from China since the 1760s. Back then, in the pre-treaty port days, it was difficult, if not impossible, for a Westerner to get around China. Besides that difficulty, there was also the matter of handling the stolen tea plants and transporting them over a great distance. Though this technology will be figured out in time, the whole idea of transplanting the tea plants from Anhui to Assam, as the McCartney mission learned, the time hadn't come yet. It was like trying to bring moon rocks back to planet Earth in the 1950s. The vision was there, but not the means. The East India Company had already contracted Charles Bruce in 1835 to lead this effort of jump-starting the planting and growing of tea in Assam. He was made superintendent of all the tea plantations there. By 1836, he was already sending samples to the tea committee. It was judged to be not bad. In the following year, a much greater quantity was sent and ended up selling at auction in London in 1839. So the research began on how to turn this Camellia sinensis varietal Assamica into a beverage that the British public would allow into their homes and teapots. With the EIC monopoly on tea now gone, the company was very hot to get this Indian operation up and running so that they could say goodbye and good riddance to their China suppliers. Well, easier said than done. Without the benefits of everything we know today and all the tools at our disposal, it was slow going. But no one had given up hope yet of the Holy Grail, transplanting Chinese plants from Anhui, Zhejiang, or Fujian, and replanting them in their experimental plantations in India. And to that end, let's begin looking at the life of Mr. Robert Fortune. He was another Scotsman from Berwickshire, 50 miles east of Edinburgh. He was born in the year 1812, the time of the Jia Qing Emperor in China, and Fortune's period in China would be spent mostly during the Daoguang and Xianfeng eras. After so many past episodes, we all know whenever we hear the names of those two emperors, it always evokes the baddest of the bad old days of Western imperialism and domination in China. You almost know in advance whatever happens during those two eras doesn't end well for China. In looking at the history of tea, like we've done all these past episodes, we've seen how China led the world in not only discovering tea, but also figuring out all the health benefits and best ways to prepare it. Japan, Korea, Tibet, Southeast Asia, Central Asia, and beyond all embraced this drink. And after Islam had taken hold in Central Asia, and of course in the Middle East and North Africa, Adherents were no longer permitted to partake in the daily tipple. But tea was there, waiting in the wings, to act as a fine replacement to wine and spirits. I think I mentioned last episode, by the Qing dynasty, all the six main categories of tea had by this time already been discovered. Mechanization had been able to replace some of the handwork, but Chinese teas were still mainly a handmade industry. Tea was by then well on its way to becoming the world's second most consumed substance after water. Also around this time in the Qing, teaware became more beautiful, more fanciful, and at the high end, more spectacular. 
I remember on one of my Guangzhou trips, I visited the Guangdong Museum and saw a fantastic exhibit of Guangcai porcelain. Guangcai is the abbreviated term of this colorful, hand-painted porcelain that was the specialty of the Guangzhou area. Foreigners clamored for this stuff. These hand-painted designs incorporated both Western and Chinese themes. A lot of Guangcai was made to order, specifically for importers in Europe. Gone was the simplicity and subtlety of past ceramic styles. Guangcai was the kind of porcelain perhaps you've all seen before that was both colorful and decorated with gold leaf, inspired by the ceramic treasures coming out of this period in the Qing were porcelain operations in England, in towns like Chelsea, Bow, and Derby, and perhaps most famously in Stoke-on-Trent. Some people of substance and power back in London, after watching the global tea business grow from nothing in 1610, began to feel this business was much too big to leave in the hands of one monopolistic and increasingly unstable and unreliable trade partner, namely China. But after all these years, still, no one had figured out how to correctly grow the tea, pick the tea, and most important of all, how to process the tea. Only in China did they know how to do this, in the way that the European people liked it. And the Chinese guarded the process well. Tea was always grown in remote and usually mountainous areas, and because of the homogenous Han Chinese population. If any non-Chinese, especially a Westerner, was seen walking around those parts, well, they stuck out like a sore thumb. So waltzing in to the Wuyi Mountains and poking your nose around to observe and steal all the secrets of processing tea wasn't so easy to do. But in the first decades of the 19th century, the tea powers in the East India Company more and more felt it was bad for business to continue to be so beholden to a single supplier, China, for the entirety of their supply. And when the Treaty of Nanjing was inked in 1842, there was still no place except China where quality product could be shipped in the massive quantities demanded by world markets. And the nagging suspicion now, after humiliating the Chinese nation so badly with the Treaty of Nanjing, was that China, out of spite or economic survival, would get into the opium business themselves, and that would spell the end of the EIC's opium export business. After all, if the Chinese decided to grow their own opium and supply the domestic market themselves, they could easily undercut British opium from India. And if the EIC couldn't dump the opium in China, once again, they'd be stuck paying silver bullion for tea. So it became more than a feeling that something had to be done to ameliorate this disadvantageous state of affairs. And when Lin Zixu burned all the opium back in 1839, it spooked everyone. By the time of the 1830s and 40s, the EIC saw China's continued tea monopoly as a clear and present danger. The tax revenues and profits generated from the tea trade were too critical to Britain at all costs a solution was needed to break China's monopoly. In 1830, the first tea factory was set up in Java by the Dutch to process all the tea that had been planted there in 1826. These tea seeds had come from Japan. The first Java teas to reach the markets of Amsterdam will be in 1835. 
So if the Dutch could figure out a way, the British could too. In the fall of 1842, with the experimental tea gardens in Assam going at full speed, and right after the Treaty of Nanjing was signed, Robert Fortune set sail for China. He went on a botanical mission sponsored by the Royal Horticultural Society of London to research the exotic flora of China. For a young man like Fortune, 30 years old, that was quite an appointment from such an esteemed society. Robert Fortune didn't come from money, rank, or privilege, so in order to get such a plum, high-profile assignment as this, meant he had to be very good at his job. Fortune had worked his way up the ladder in his field the hard way. He started at the bottom, was good at what he did, and thankfully he got noticed. This position as the Horticultural Society's collector in China came thanks to the Scottish physician and botanist William McNabb. If you weren't from the privileged class, signing up for something like a three-year mission to China was something people of ambition did. You never knew what could come of it, and plenty of nobodies went on to make something of their lives wandering out to the hinterlands of the British Empire. You may recall with the Treaty of Nanjing, five new treaty ports had opened to direct foreign trade. The Canton system, so hated by the foreign traders, was gone at last. Now, for the first time in Chinese history, there were a lot of Europeans wandering around those places. So now, bumping into Europeans every day, it wasn't common, but you'd see them around. That was one thing that had changed. The Governor-General of India, from 1844 to 1848, was Henry Harding. He had said of China and the tea industry, quote, I deem it most desirable to afford every encouragement to the cultivation of tea in India. In my opinion, the latter is likely in course of time to prove an equally prolific and more safe source of revenue to the state than now derived from the monopoly on opium. End quote. Harding had been an early proponent of Indian tea, and had even been the first to send a tin of the stuff to England. More and more, the British colonials and tea barons began to look in the direction of the Himalayas as far as where the future of the tea trade was. Indian tea had been available in Britain since the 1830s, but the general consensus was that, while it wasn't bad, it also wasn't quite up to snuff for the discerning British market. Maybe you can liken this to when California wines first entered the international market it wasn't considered respectable or as fine-tasting as European wines. Nobody was flocking to buy them. The seeds for this Himalayan tea had come from China, but they weren't the best seeds, and whatever they got was all they could get their hands on. They still had a long way to go. Any farmer or Monsanto executive will tell you, it's all in the seeds, man. Not all Camellia sinensis seeds were created equal. But despite the early dissatisfaction with the Indian tea, Governor General Harding hung in there as far as the potential went. Let me quote Sarah Rose from her book, For All the Tea in China. Here she's quoting Henry Harding. Quote, I consider it highly probable that in the course of a few years, the cultivation of Himalayan tea is likely to prove a highly valuable source of revenue for the state. No apparent difficulties exist to the spread of tea cultivation in the hills to an almost unlimited extent, and I have every confidence that at no remote period, 
tea will be produced in sufficient amount not only to meet the probably large demand in India, but also in quantity and sufficient fineness and quality to enable it to compete with the tea of China in European markets and to render England, in some degree, independent of a foreign country for its supplies of this necessity of life. End quote. 1843, Robert Fortune sailed into Hong Kong Harbor to begin his assignment. These were the earliest days of British Hong Kong. If you recall from those History of Hong Kong episodes from the CHP, the word on the street about the colony's prospects as a trading entrepot were most dismal. From Hong Kong, Fortune sailed north up the coast of China to Shanghai, to the mouth of the Yangtze. From there... Fortune began his inaugural trip to China, and he was tasked to keep his eye open for anything of horticultural value and to bring back as many specimens as possible for further study in London. He was also told to look for anything of value concerning tea. He found a lot of things out, but perhaps most important of all was the knowledge that green tea and black tea Both came from the same exact plant. If I may, I wanted to take a few quotes from Robert Fortune's book titled Three Years' Wanderings in the Northern Provinces of China. Now, he didn't really wander north of Shanghai, so technically his wanderings weren't in the northern provinces. But he did get around Zhejiang, Jiangsu, and Fujian, and that counted for something. This book, written by Fortune, was published after his return to England in 1849. This trip made him being quite a trained and disciplined botanist and horticulturalist himself, the observations and notations Fortune made were astounding. The book and his whole adventure in China were a sensation in their day. Let me quote from Fortune's book. There are a few subjects connected with the vegetable kingdom which have attracted such a large share of public notice as the tea plant of China. Its cultivation on the Chinese hills, the particular species or variety which produce the black and green teas of commerce, and the method of preparing the leaves, have always been objects of peculiar interest. The jealousy of the Chinese government in former times prevented foreigners from visiting any of the districts where tea is cultivated. And hence, we find English authors contradicting each other, some asserting that the black and green teas are produced by the same variety, and that the difference in color is a result of a different mode of preparation, while others say that the black teas are produced from the plant called by botanists Tia bohi, and the green from Tia veridis, both of which we have had for many years in our gardens in England. End quote. Fortune had seen firsthand that, quote, The greater part of the black and green teas, which are brought yearly from China to Europe and America, are obtained from the same species or variety, namely from the tea of Eridus. Great was my surprise to find all the plants on the tea hills near Fuzhou exactly the same as those in the green tea districts of the north. Although the Specific differences of the tea plants were well known to me. I was so much surprised, and I may add amused at this discovery, that I procured a set of specimens for the herbarium, and also dug up a living plant, which I took northward to Zhejiang. On comparing it with those which grow on the green tea hills, no difference whatsoever was observed. End quote. And with that, the great Swede, Carl Linnaeus himself, was proven wrong by fortune regarding black and green tea coming from 
two different species of a tea plant. Fortune made some interesting observations during his China journey, and this book can be obtained online for free. I downloaded a PDF version. Fortune said of the first teas of the season to be picked, quote, In the green tea districts of Zhejiang near Ningbo, the first crop of leaves is generally gathered around the middle of April. This consists of the young leaf buds just as they begin to unfold and forms a fine and delicate kind of young hyson, which is held in high estimation by the natives and is generally sent about in small quantities as presents to their friends. It is a scarce and expensive article, and the picking of the leaves in such a young state does considerable injury to the tea plantations. The summer rains, however, which fall copiously about this season, moisten the earth and air, and if the plants are young and vigorous, they soon push out fresh leaves. End quote. It's said that on this adventurous three-year trip, Fortune acquired enough of a proficiency in Mandarin so that if he dressed up in a Chinese official's garb, well, if nobody got too close, he could pass as a local. And I don't want to leave you hanging or anything, but I'm going to leave you hanging until next time when we pick up with episode 16 to discuss the real star of this whole enterprise, the one who made Fortune's success in China all possible with his revolutionary but simple invention. It helped change the world. You won't want to miss that, so do consider coming back for more. That's going to be it for me this time. Laszlo Montgomery signing off from the city of Los Angeles in Der Goldenstadt. I'm really hoping to see you next time for another Episodio Delicioso of the Tea History Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>